for anyone who's been following it over the last few years, you'll know that there's supposed to be the Manchester Pusher. I have spoken to the journalist who first broke the stories. For some reason, somehow, 85 bodies had been found in the last five years in the Manchester canals. Manchester being a city in the north of England, very popular with university students and the gay village as well. It was a very vibrant city. You could actually ask, is this the work of a serial killer operating around the canals? Well, between February 2008 and December 2014, 61 bodies were pulled from the canals. The vast majority of these bodies were male and many of the deaths recorded as unexplainable, with open verdicts given at their inquests. By January 2015, the number had gone up to 85 bodies. Well, 28 of the deaths are still unexplained, and 40 of the bodies remain unidentified. The bodies have been found in the shallow canals that flow through the city centre. Others have been found in the rivers surrounding the city. The story was splashed all over front-page national newspapers in the UK. What the newspaper reporters have failed to notice, however, is that there are more. There are many more cases of men being pulled out of rivers and canals and ponds in surrounding cities, approximately an hour to two hours' drive away. Superficially, they are young men who have inexplicably disappeared after a night out, and later, sometimes much later, they've been found dead in rivers or canals. The Manchester cases are being called the pusher. However, it appears very likely to me, although I'm not an expert, but not only could there be a lone serial killer who does push men into the canals in Manchester and leave them to drown, but that also there is something else going on. The abduction, holding and disposing of young men in water once they are dead could be happening here too. We have a mixture of things going on really. Some may be the work of a lone operator in Manchester who's not choosy about who he pushes into water, although he has a clear preference that it be a male, but a male of any age. But others, when I widen the geographical radius, may indeed fit those who are specifically hunting young men. If these victims were being randomly pushed in by someone vindictive, they wouldn't all be successful attempts. At some point, one of the victims would fight, struggle and not drown. People would soon hear about it. Police teams have been seen in videos walking through stretches of the canals. The water is not even knee-deep, so how could they all easily drown in shallow water? Well, I lived in Manchester, and the canals run through the city centre, mainly the old industrial parts, but also they run quite close to the very busy nightclubs and bars. It's a thriving city, and it has a popular gay village, and every night bars are packed with drinkers. Many will inevitably on occasion drink too much, some will, as a result, have accidents. However, the canals are not obvious routes to take home. They're not renovated scenic canals, but rather they are dimly lit, strewn with litter, damp and dark. They aren't a shortcut to anywhere, and they aren't a route home. They're not somewhere anyone would go for a pleasant walk home. Yet some of the deaths have clearly indicated that something else might be going on other than an innocent, accidental fall into the canals. Nowhere near where the man lived or where he'd been drinking. A man called Rory Johnson Hadfield vanished from a pub without telling the friend he'd just met that he was leaving. he crossed the river to the other side of town and was last seen on CCTV there. After that, he simply disappeared without trace. Rory was on a night out in a small city he loved to visit, in a city he was very familiar with. He was last seen at around 12.40am in York, an hour's drive from Manchester. Well, Rory Hadfield disappeared on November the 20th, 2015. 
He is slim, five feet nine, with a light build and with light brown hair. In fact, he looks similar to another man who went missing, later to be found dead in the river, a young man called James Bennion. He also looks like a number of the other young men who over the last few years across cities of Manchester, York, Leeds and Durham have vanished after a night out, only to be found dead in the river, or never found. An uncanny similarity ties them all together, which of course could be simply coincidence, or could be something more sinister. They all seem to have had the same slight, slim build. They all looked quite young. They all had delicate features. There is a really startling similarity to their appearances. They did not look tough or well-built or fighters. They did not look like the kind of men who would pick a fight with anyone. They were quite possibly seen as easy pickings. Or they were chosen. Chosen for the way they looked by someone who was looking for that specific shape and size and look. Rory Hadfield was a 29-year-old waiter from the town of Skipton, and he'd come to York with a friend and booked into a hotel in the small city centre for the night. Then he vanished. His family and friends have vowed never to give up looking for him. On a specially set-up Facebook page, they chronicle their search effort to find him. It says, once again, we are indebted to the kindness of the volunteer search team and their trained dogs, as well as members of the mountain rescue team who were assisting the police underwater search unit. The river had been searched all that weekend, in March 2016, then another search of the rivers, four months after he vanished. Why could the dogs not pick up his scent? The police stated he may have got into difficulty walking along the river. If that were the case, his scent at least would presumably have been picked up in the four preceding months. Again though, the question is why would he have been walking alone along the riverside? His parents, family, friends and many volunteers had spent weeks searching for him. They said we will carry on searching these areas, weather permitting, as we have done so for the extremely difficult 20 weeks that our son Rory has been missing. The local newspaper, covering frequent updates on the searching activity taking place, reported extensive searches have been carried out by teams of police, but they have not found any clues or any trace of Rory. Of the people gathered today, family and friends, to search for him, none are convinced he actually fell in the river. But they need to feel that they are doing something to help solve the mystery. Rory went missing in the early hours. It was the evening of Thursday, the 19th of November, when he checked into the Travelodge Hotel with a male friend who was a taxi driver from his hometown. They'd been friends for a long time. After he vanished, the North Yorkshire Police released further details of his last known movements. At 11.30pm, he was in the pub next door to the hotel. He'd gone there for a drink with a father and son he'd just met, who were also checked into the same hotel. At midnight, he returned to the hotel with the father and son. Fifteen minutes later, he left the hotel with one of these two hotel guests to go to another pub. That was the last time his friend, the taxi driver, who'd travelled to York with him, saw him. After just fifteen minutes inside that pub, he left, apparently alone, and moments later he was seen again on CCTV across the river having walked over the bridge towards more pubs on that side of the river. The man he left in the pub presumed that Rory must have left the pub when he didn't return after a considerable amount of time had passed, and presumably this man then returned alone to the hotel that they were both staying at. In a later statement, the police released more information about Rory's last known movements. 
They said, what we've managed to ascertain is that in the evening he'd gone to a pub with a man who was also not from York. The two of them were then separated. The person he'd gone to the pub with believed he'd gone to the toilet. And that's the last confirmed sighting of Rory. What we want to do is find out from the public if he was seen anywhere after that. His story does remind me of the case of Joey Laboot in Columbus, Ohio, who also disappeared while in the pub, leaving by himself and not telling the people that he was leaving. Perhaps, given that it was a man that Rory had only just met, a man who was staying at the same hotel, perhaps Rory had got bored, or didn't like his company, or that, for any other unknown reason, he preferred to just leave rather than tell the man he was leaving. There could well be a completely simple explanation as to why he chose to leave the pub without informing the other man. But the bigger mystery, of course, just like in Joey Leboot's case, is where he went after he left. He didn't go back to the hotel, because if he had, he would have been picked up on the CCTV footage as he made his way back to the hotel and entered it. He never made it back to the hotel, and yet it also can't be determined where he did go. Curiously, there appears to be a complete lack of CCTV footage of him. Why is there no more CCTV footage? Just like Brian Schaefer, who disappeared inside a bar in Columbus, Ohio, and has never been found, and just like Joey Laboot, who was tragically found in the river on the outskirts of town, with no water in his lungs, after sending a scrabbled text that some have interpreted as meaning he was being held hostage. Will Rory, too, seem to invisibly disappear? It would seem that from the released timeline of Rory's movements, which were released after footage from all the CCTV cameras had been scrutinised by the police, he had crossed over the bridge to the other side of the river. However, that was where the images of him ended, despite him being in an area just as built up as the other side of the river. It's an area called the City Mills, just a couple of minutes' walk across the bridge, and there's several pubs there. If he had gone to a pub, however, he would have been seen, both on camera and in person. The appeals for information, once he went missing, would surely have brought some leads from people who had seen him in the street that night, or seen him standing next to them at a bar. But no one came forward to say they'd seen him. The police, on learning of his unexplained disappearance, stated that they believed it was possible he had got into difficulty on the other side of the river, by walking along the river's edge. They said one line of inquiry is that Rory may have got into difficulty while walking near the River Ouse in the City Mills and Skeldergate Bridge area after midnight. Why he would have been doing that was not stated. But if he had been doing that, why would he have crossed the bridge to do it when he could have done that without crossing the river? His family later confirmed that the image captured of him on CCTV on the other side of the river was him at approximately 12.40am. It was released to the newspapers and in the picture he appears to be walking confidently and appears to be in no kind of distress. He doesn't look drunk, he doesn't look disoriented. But then he somehow suddenly disappeared and was never seen again on any more CCTV, reminiscent of the case of Josh Strasak in New York. According to the support Facebook page set up for him, the police's response had been extensive enough to visit all of the premises in the vicinity in which he disappeared. For example, a snooker club commented that they had been contacted by the police who had visited the club and taken away any recorded CCTV footage for analysis. Yorkshire Boat Rescue had been out on the river multiple times after he disappeared, looking for him. Police divers went in the river again in December 2015. 
a crowdfunding page was set up to raise money for the boat service. In their appeal for donations, they described the missing man as one of the most genuine, gentle, loving and happiest and trusting guys they knew. Appeals were made for anyone in the area to check the CCTV on their properties, all householders, and the police appealed to anyone who had been driving in the area that night to check their digicams. Appeals were made for anyone, any members of the general public, who were out that night to check their phones for any photographs they might have taken that night in case Rory had been captured in the background. When interviewed by local newspaper The Herald Gazette, a police spokesman said, The river search was just one element of this investigation. At the moment, we have completed as thoroughly as we can areas where there is any possibility of finding any evidence of him being in the river. During the course of this search, we've used 3D imaging sonars in the areas of highest probability, and we've towed in the area beyond that. We've done riverbank searches and water searches. The attention on the river may have focused people's attention on when he was last sighted, that he could have gone into the river. But if people could review their CCTV footage for the time period beyond that to give us any indication of his presence in any part of the city, please contact us and pass that footage on to us. Well, in other words, the police seemed to be saying that there was no indication that he had actually gone into the water where he was last seen, which meant... He now had to be somewhere else. But where? Well, to date, he is still missing. In June 2012, Chris Brahmi had been to a rock concert on the outskirts of Manchester with a group of friends. After it finished, he decided to go into the city centre to retrieve a new pair of trainers he'd hidden earlier in a car park. He'd left them there so that he didn't have to carry them and have them with him at the concert. CCTV, that is available on YouTube still, captures over 10 minutes of his journey, from retrieving the trainers in a shopping bag to carrying them through street after street in the city centre. He can clearly be seen walking in a perfectly capable and coherent manner through the streets from around 1.45am until the last CCTV camera films him walking through a passage. He's not stumbling or wandering around without coordination, In other words, he does not appear at all to be inebriated or under the influence of drugs. Ten days later, his body is found in the canal. What the police still do not know is how he ended up in the canal. The spot where he was thought to have entered the water has a high railing that would have required climbing. The police said, while CCTV follows his movements, we still cannot say how or why he died. The spot in which he died was not covered by CCTV. The police also made it clear they have had no evidence leading it to be considered suspicious, despite the fact that the coroner found him to have had a fractured cheekbone, bruising and cuts to his face post-mortem. So these injuries were caused after death. Traces of alcohol in his body and indeed the drug MDMA. So clearly one could argue that the drug caused him to climb up the fence, jump over it into the canal. Although, it does beg the question how he managed to find his shoes and walk so capably through the city centre without any signs of being influenced and incapable by the drug. With the pathologist's ruling that the injuries were caused after death, this would imply that he was killed without these injuries, then suffered the injuries afterwards. Well, if he didn't experience the injuries as a result of throwing himself into the water... 
let's say, in a desire to commit suicide or simply because the drug made him do it, then how could he have got the injuries after he died? So in other words, he couldn't have inflicted those injuries on himself. Did he encounter someone in the canal who offered him the drug? Did the drug then work immediately and make him jump into the canal? Or was he killed and then placed into the canal? Very strangely, the chip from his phone was later traced to Edinburgh, Scotland. In another strange case in Manchester, Tony Scanlon's sister says, He was chased down to the canal because he would have never ever come down to this canal in the dark, not on his own. He was scared of the dark. He was frightened of the dark and frightened of his own shadow. Many times, when he visited my mother who had cancer, every evening he would call one of the boys and they would take him home or he would have to get a taxi. Even people's houses he went to, he was always known for getting in a taxi home because of the dark. It doesn't matter what anyone says to me, he was attacked or he was pushed. It wasn't an accident for one minute. I've never ever, and nor have any of the family ever believed that. He was either pushed or attacked. Her brother's death was ruled as open verdict in 2008. In the days that followed her brother's death, his sister Sharon conducted her own house-to-house -house inquiries, and she says that she found one resident who had heard what she described as an altercation between a woman and a man at roughly the same time that her brother was placed at the canal. When asked if she told the police that, the woman responded that they hadn't come knocking at her house to ask, even though it was directly in the area where the man's body had been found. And then this woman's husband told her to stop talking to the deceased man's sister and closed the door on her. Perhaps they were frightened of talking. His sister also says that there were a lot of discrepancies with regards to the investigation, or lack of, after her brother was found deceased in just inches of water. It has to be said that he had been drinking that night, but it would be the easiest answer to say that he was drunk and fell in to inches of water and drowned. His family said he would often drink, but it never made him feel drunk. His body had got accustomed to having a few pints every evening. It didn't have the effect on him that it would a new drinker, because his body was so used to it. They are adamant that it would not have incapacitated this man because he drank beer every night. One of his sons, Dave, a former soldier, said to the local news, A few cans of Stella would have had zero effect on my dad. That was nothing to him. Adding, there are too many unanswered questions. His family have a list of questions and as many discrepancies. His sister says they took us to the wrong part where they said his body was found. The CCTV footage was lost within an hour of us going from the coroner's office to the police station. There are so many discrepancies, like getting rid of his clothes and not having them looked at forensically. His keys were found in the water beside his body, but none of the money that he'd borrowed the day before was left in his wallet. He knew the canal like the back of his hand, she says. He used to fish there all the time, but he was frightened of the dark and frightened of his own shadow. There's no way he would have taken that shortcut at that time of night on his own. His son Dave is also curious to know why there are no scrape marks on his father's body if, as it appeared, the water had pushed his body about 10 metres from the obvious point of crossing the water to where he was found. He said, I think there must have been some argument or altercation. His father was found dead in just six inches of water at a lock on the Ashton Canal in Manchester, and the coroner reported an open verdict. In Manchester again, 40-year-old Michael Turner went missing on July the 20th, 2012. He was found dead on July the 28th, 2012. On the day he went missing, he'd left his flat at an unknown time with his new bicycle. 
He was found eight days later in the River Irk off Batty Street, Cheatham Hill, which is about a mile from the city centre. His autopsy was inconclusive but non-suspicious. No drugs were found in his body. Alcohol in his system was below the drink-drive limit. When his body was found, his bicycle was missing. According to his sister, he was found in the lowest part of the river, which is only ankle-deep. One shoe was found, and he was naked. A letter left in his house said, If you find me dead, look for these people. It was a list of names. It appears that this has not been followed up on, unless the police are keeping it to themselves. In York, one and a half hours from Manchester, the newspapers wrote, CCTV issued as the search continues for missing man. It was March the 2nd, 2014, and Ben Clarkson, 22, slim, with light brown hair, had gone missing in York. He'd disappeared after leaving a nightclub alone to walk home, and the police had released new CCTV images. This time, however, the images they released were not of the student, but rather it was that of two other males who'd been seen in the vicinity of the now-missing student. One of them was a man they believed was talking to him in the smoking area of the nightclub he was in, not long before the student left the nightclub. They described him as white with short dark hair, wearing a red check shirt, a t-shirt and dark trousers. The other man was also a young man, seen walking along the same road as the missing student, but on the opposite side of the road. He too was a young white male. He walked along Stonebow, heading towards the junction with Foss Island Road, on the opposite side of the road to Ben. A short time later, this person takes the same route past the junction, along Leithorpe. Nothing suspicious there, necessarily. However, the last confirmed sighting of the student was just moments later, near to the junction of James Street on the same Leithorpe. It was 3.40am on Sunday, the 2nd of March, 2014. Inspector Neil Drummond said in a statement, I urge either of you men to get in touch with us. I'm sure the person who walked along Leithorpe will have seen Ben as he made his way home and will be able to help identify the route he took. He also commented, I need to speak to the man at Fibber's nightclub, as although he spoke with Ben, his friends don't recognise him, and I ask that he also get in touch. Asking the general public too, he asked that anyone who recognised the two men from the CCTV released also contact the police or forward their contact details to them. The area in which Ben disappeared was not isolated, yet he seemingly vanished after that, with no further CCTV images available of him along his continued route if he did indeed continue to walk along it. That would seem very strange then. Again, it reminds me of the case of Rory Hadfield-Jones in York, of the case of Josh Dossack, of the case of Jerry Laboot, of so many cases. Over the following days, neither man came forward and the police continued their public appeals, their concern growing over the missing young man. Ben was of slight build, with mousy blonde hair, and to all observers would have been seen as a gentle soul with delicate features and a softness to him. Police officers had been out in force searching for him since he disappeared that night, paying particular attention to the route he was last seen taking when he inexplicably vanished. A regional underwater search team was brought in to search the nearby waterway and trained search dogs were used to try to pick up on his scent. The underwater search team had carried out searches in the River Foss, between the Foss Basin, in the heart of the small city, up to Huntington Road 45 minutes walk away, following the route of the River Foss. Scanning equipment was utilised in the river, while policemen searched the river by hand. 
The police did say that the river was a shallow and slow-flowing one and was relatively free of debris, meaning that if he was in there, they should have been able to feel for him or the sonar should have picked him up. Interestingly, Sergeant Steve Bierce of the Specialist Marine Unit in charge of coordinating the search said, From a safety point of view, most of the river is reasonably well covered with railings. At its deepest, this river is 1.5 metres. So if it was mostly covered by rail guards, how could he have reasonably fallen into the water? And if it was just 1.5 metres deep, how could he have drowned? As the days passed with still no news of the missing man, Underwater searchers continued to focus on the Heworth Green area of the river, north of the road he'd last been seen on. Had the scent dogs traced him to that area? Or was it because that was the most likely route he would have taken had he continued northwards on that stretch of road? The police did not release information about this. Meanwhile, his family made statements appealing to the general public to come forward if they had any information, even if it was the smallest, most trivial detail. They had nothing to go on and no way to understand how he had seemingly vanished while walking along a main road. They said he would never disappear and not contact them. He'd never done it before, and they could find no reason why he would do it now. It was completely out of character. He had a job at a record shop in the town centre, having graduated from the university, and he would never not turn up for work. The River Ooze Safety Unit started urging people to stay together as a group when they went out at night, in order to stop these tragic accidents from happening. They said watch out for each other and stay together when heading home, so that if an accident happens, there's someone to raise the alarm. For days after Ben went missing, the search was as intensive as possible. The sense of urgency was indicated in each day's local newspaper reports. Then his body was found in the river. From looking closely at the area map, it doesn't appear that the river runs alongside the road he was walking on. It appears that he would have had to have turned left off the main road, Leathorpe, and walked down a street to reach the riverside, behind shops including a Mazda car dealership and a taxi company, a car accessory shop and Asda supermarket. His body was found in the river there, at the point of his last known sighting. Well, if the police knew that had been the site of his last known location and had utilised tracker dogs and searched the area there, then why was it that it took three weeks to find his body in a river described by the head of the marine unit as 1.5 metres deep, free of debris and slow running? So how did they not find his body? Had his body actually been there all that time? At the young man's inquest, his family had to have a combined inquest with that of another deceased person because the coroner believed it would serve as a warning to others not to risk falling in the river after a night out. The coroner, David Coverdale, decided to rule on both his and a young woman's deaths as accidental drownings together and spoke out to raise people's awareness of drinking too much when out with friends on the town. The other person was 20-year-old student Megan Roberts, whose body had been found just weeks earlier in the same river again after a night out drinking. A young soldier, too, had also drowned in the river, jumping in when he was dared to, but failing to make it out alive, again after a night out drinking with army friends. The coroner and the families of the victims believed that by raising the profile of these cases, it would serve to help save other young people from the same tragic fate. One has to wonder, however, if by placing all of these cases into the same category, other explanations are then not going to be explored as fully as they should be, perhaps. On taking a broader look at the cases across all these surrounding cities, 
and the strange circumstances in which some of these men have seemingly vanished instantly while walking home, isn't there something else going on in some of these cases than just mere drowning accidents? You could say that these all are accidents, that this is because people drink too much when they go out at night and they don't realise the danger they're putting themselves in. Or you could say that there's something far more worrying and evil going on.